Good morning. morning. Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the uh, uh, opportunity to come and study with you today, and we ask that your Spirit will join us. Uh, Let us grow in your love and your your methods and principles, and let this message lighten the world that you might come, we pray in your holy name. Amen. And a couple of announcements. For those who don't know, we have a free app that is available for your various smart devices. And on the app, you can get most of our resources, including the uh, blogs that we're doing uh, weekly now. Then our speaking schedule is uh, in the notes. If you haven't gone to the notes, um, upcoming events around the country and locally are going to be in the, in the back of the notes. So lesson today is God or Mammon, lesson three in the quarterly Stewardship Motives of the Heart. And the first paragraph of the lesson states, God does not waste words explaining his perspective on on, uh, excessive obsession with money and material things. Christ's words to the greedy rich man who, although blessed by the Lord, hoarded and hoarded what he had, should put the fear of God in us all. Fool, this night your soul be required of you. Then Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So he who lays up treasure for himself is not rich towards God. In this description, is this how you understand God? That God does not waste words with trying to get you to understand things? He just says it, do it, or else? See, what is the entire purpose of Scripture? To get to know God. Isn't it not explanation, revelation, trying to lead you to comprehend and understand? See, what about God talking with Moses or Abraham or, or Jesus and his disciples? And there are lots of explaining going on. Is this the idea then we should get from the parable? Don't waste words. I'm not going to waste words with you. Just going just gonna to put the fear of God in you so you'll get in line. But, uh, you know, as I travel around, I, I actually hear a lot of people either email us, write us, or talk to us and ask questions. Well, why is the Bible, if it's so plain, it's, it's like you teach it. Why is the Bible written like it's written? You ever ask that question? Why doesn't it just come out and say it? Uh, some people ask the stories seem, seem to be so hard to understand, so difficult. Well, <clears throat> think about God's method and what he's trying to achieve. Which of the following do you think is the method of God? No explanations, just declarations, do it or else. Detailed explanations, giving all the answers, here's what you need to know, like a math teacher who gives you the key and doesn't teach you how to do math, but here's all the answers, you just memorize the answers and you're good. Detailed explanations, telling you what the answers are. Or, presenting the principles and the evidence of how things actually work and why they work that way, so that you can evaluate it for yourself and come to your own conclusion. Now, which of those three methods do you think Scripture is most consistent with? What can you achieve with the last method that you cannot achieve with the first two methods? Yeah, what you get's right. Okay, I like that. Can you get individuality to grow, to mature, to expand? Can you get love and trust by do it or else? By hear all the answers, just memorize the key. Or does it require your comprehension, your contemplation, your reasoning through? And so you th- see things in Scripture. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, white like snow. It's reasoning with God that there's some cleansing somehow going on there. Or every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind. Why? Because what is it that God actually wants? Love relationship. Love relationship, which means love and trust. Can you get love and trust with threats and coercion? You can't. So we have, this is the method. This is why it's this way. Yes, Linda. Well, you know, there are times when he changes the way he presents things to people because of the way they're thinking. Like he only, he'd tell everybody stuff in parables, but he would explain it to his disciples. Or he would give the Israelites in, in detailed instructions on what to do about mild and mildew, blah, 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 and infectious diseases. But they didn't know anything about microbes or any, he didn't go into that kind of depth. Like there's little germs that you can't see, blah, blah, blah. He just basically tells them, do this. And so what you've done is you just given evidence on how God operates. He meets people where they are. He speaks the language they need to understand. He communicates in a way they're open to comprehend. And, and that's an evidence of how he operates rather than just saying, here's what you do, do it, don't ask questions. 
And that's why we see all these differences in how he approaches people, because people are, as you say, at different places of their ability to comprehend. Yes. I think I believe that's uh, three, use three different methods of uh, showing himself. Uh, you know, he gives choices to people, do this or you can have these consequences. He also shows them also, if you do this, you'll also have some, I know, uh, the three methods we've been showing with us, uh, sharing with us this morning. I think God uses them, but it depends on how, uh, how the person or the group of people comprehends in their journey with him. Yes, and like a good parent, God will sometimes step in and allow himself to be viewed as the source of the problem. A child who's running into the street, the parent will step in and threaten, if you run into the street, I'm going to spank you. And a small child might not understand the dangers of the street, and at that age come to think the real danger is coming from the parent, and I need to fear my parent who will punish me. The parent steps in between them and the ultimate consequence to allow themselves to be viewed as the source while the child is growing up, and when the child grows up, they go, well, my mom and dad were never the source of my, my punishment for running into the street. It was, it was getting hit by the car, and they were doing that to protect me. That's the Old Testament. God steps in and allows himself to be viewed as threatening in many places. Look what the people were doing. They were heading over cliffs of idolatry and fornication and all types of fertility cult worship, but were searing their consciences and hardening their hearts. And he st- stepped in and allowed himself to be viewed this way, but it was never coming from him. What do you think about this idea that this parable should put the fear of God into us all? Are they saying that we should be actually frightened in terror of God? Are they saying that we should obey because if we don't obey, that God will use power to ruin us and hurt us and torture us? That our fear should be of God, what he'll do to us if we disobey? What kind of thinking is this? What level of moral development? This is level one, reward and punishment. Something's bad if you get punished for it. It's good if you get rewarded for it. This is level one thinking. And what does it result in? If people actually stay at this level, don't mature, and they obey because they're afraid they'll get punished if they don't, what results over time? More love or less love? More cooperation or more rebellion? Development of individuality or destruction of individuality? That's what this leads to. Destroys love, incites rebellion, and destroys individuality. You become a thoughtless, mindless slave. Another way to say that, you become a brute beast, a creature of instinct. John the Baptist's father, when he could finally speak, he prophesied, it said, in Luke 1, um, and showed what Jesus' mission here on earth was. And starting with um, 73... Uh, these are the things that his mission was for. One of them was the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable him, enable us to serve him without fear. There you go. And perfect love casts out all fear. So if we come back to a knowledge of God, this life eternal might know the only true God, allow him to write his law in our hearts and minds, Hebrews chapter 8. If we allow these things to happen, do we get more love or less love? And as more love comes in, do we have more fear or less fear? Yes. So this idea that we should live in fear of God is counter to the actual plan of God that as we come to love him, we have less fear of him. It casts out the fear. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph. It was Christ that spread the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth. It was his hand that hung the worlds in space and fashioned the flowers of the field. His strength set fast the mountains. The sea is his and he made it. It was he that filled the earth with beauty and the air with song. And upon all things in earth and air and sky, he wrote the message of the Father's love. Wasn't that beautifully stated? That was just so well done. And the message that when you look out into nature, the message that Christ wrote there is the message of the Father's love. Exactly. And we see that in Romans one twenty. God's divine nature is seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. The principle of beneficence and giving and all things live that live, live to serve or to give to others. That's how life is built. The whole planet teems with this. But we're also told in Romans 8 that now nature groans under the weight of sin. And we don't see exclusively the principles of love in nature. We see an antagonistic principle. Do you think in Eden, before Adam and Eve sinned, you would have been able to find raptors, you know, eagles, hawks, falcons with claws and beaks that tear flesh? Predators like wolves, lions, and bears with claws and fangs designed to tear flesh. 
Do you think we'd have found that in Eden prior to sin? Poisonous biting insects and arachnids. Those are like spiders and scorpions. Poisonous plants. Think there's poison ivy in Eden? Thorns. Think the roses had thorns in, in Eden. Viruses and harmful microorganisms. Hmm. If God didn't create these things like this, or did they, where do these organisms come from? How did this happen? Where did wolves and lions come from? Never thought about that. Notice I didn't say where did they come from. I said, do you think they would have had claws and fangs designed to tear flesh? Oh. See, I think that God made the birds and made the, the animals, the lions and so forth, and the bears, but I don't think they had claws and fangs to tear flesh. And if you want some biblical evidence for that, what does Isaiah say Well, the lion and the lamb will do together? Right. And they, they will be vegetarian. They will eat the straw. <laughs> okay? So something changed in the ecosystem. So the lion and the lamb, for instance, was there a change in the nature of humankind Absolutely. Prior to sin, did we would Adam have thrown Eve under the bus to protect himself? Wasn't me, it was the woman, Lord. Take her, don't hurt me. Prior to the fall, he would have sacrificed himself for her. So something changed in nature. I'm going to suggest to you that this was Jesus said in his parable that an enemy has sown the seeds of weeds and death into the system. An enemy did this. God didn't do it. This is an attack. Satan cannot create life, but Satan can pervert and twist and manipulate and mutate. And so his powers are are at work on earth, and not just his powers, human beings. Do you know in, in science today, we have made amalgamations of animals and humans? There are mice and rats with, hu- with human neurons in their brain. Pigs now produce human insulin. They're growing human organs in pigs for transplant. They genetically, they have genetically transferred genes from one animal to another animal, and we have chickens with duck beaks instead of chicken beaks because they put the duck genes in the chicken. We are manipulating the code. Do you think Satan can manipulate the code? And then random mutations without any intelligent manipulation, just random mutations are happening. So the, the system's infected. Do we value material things, material things, differently than God does? You think about the, the New Jerusalem as streets of gold. Pavement in his system is something of value in ours. Yes, so, so you're, you're, by the answer, you're saying, yes, we value material things differently than God. The question then, why? Why do we value material things differently than God? But their value has changed. Has the value of material things changed? Well, I don't think gold or diamonds in heaven are that valuable. Here. Why, what makes them valuable here? Right. Do you think they have different properties in heaven? The gold has actually a different elemental number in heaven than it has here. Or is it the same elemental number? Diamond is made out of uh, carbon here, but it's made out of something other than carbon there? So why is it the value different? Because you're not laying on it. Oh, look, it's what we put on it. Because other cultures, they value other things for currency. For example, you know, maybe shell or or rock of some sort. Isn't it Yap that has the currency, which is big giant stones with the circle stones? Isn't it it the island of Yap? Yeah. The, the currency is this big stone with a hole in the center. And the bigger the stone with the hole, the richer you are. Mm-hmm. So yes, it's something we put. But why do we put value in these things? And I'm going to suggest to you it comes out of the sin nature, fear and selfishness. And what we're looking for is we're looking for something to make us feel secure, to make us feel safe. So we value, and some things have a very primitive and realistic value to us, like Food and clothing and housing and these things that we actually need physiologically. And so we value stuff that makes us feel enriched in the things of life. Okay, We value these things because we derive security from the things rather than security from the one who provides the things. Yes? Maybe? No? 
No. Examples of people who, who trusted in God and derived security from God rather than in material or physical things. I'm going to give you some examples from Scripture. David, when he went out to confront Goliath, he was physical might. He wasn't confident in his own strength against Goliath. He was trusting God rather than in his own strength. Elisha, when the armies came and he prayed that his servant could see, he wasn't trusting in his physical armies of Israel. Elijah and the widow and the flour and the oil. You remember the story? Every day there was enough for the next day. For three and a half years of the famine, they always had enough. It wasn't in the oil and the flour they trusted. They weren't hoarding up in a big cellar somewhere. They were trusting in God who provided. Jonathan and his servant. Jonathan and his servant. And, and Elijah when the, uh, when the ravens brought. Jehoshaphat when the army came. 185,000 Assyrians. Gideon and the Amalekites. Jesus feeding the, the masses, the 4,000, the 5,000 and, and more. The apostles, both when they were imprisoned and delivered and when they were imprisoned and martyred. In both cases, their security wasn't coming from their physical circumstance, was it? Do we in our life, day in, day out, as the days unfold, do you connect every physical blessing, every material blessing, do you connect it immediately to God and see it's a provision from God and your security is not in that blessing, not in the portfolio, not in the paycheck, not in the house, not in the retirement plan, not on the Social Security check from the U.S. government, but your security is in God. Do you think this is why Jesus told them in Luke twenty-two nineteen, and he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. Was he merely setting up a ritual, or was he suggesting every time you get together and eat food and break bread at every meal, remember your food, your sustenance, your nurturance comes from me. I'm the vine. You're the branches. Stay connected. That's your security. And Jesus says that, you know, one of the, well, in the Old Testament, it says that um, I, I bless you with all these things, but the result seems to be that you turn to those things then and, and are valuing those things and you turn away from me. So one of the problems with blessing people <laughs> is their tendency to cling on to the thing he blesses them with instead of sticking with him. Exactly. Um, <clears throat> well said. Uh, Monday's lesson, third paragraph. One reason Jesus came to the world was to show just how loving and caring God is and how much he cares for, for each of us. Far from being some cold and distant deity, uh, as some believed, Jesus revealed our Heavenly Father's true character. This is well said. Well said. It's absolutely right. And it's well said in several reasons because Jesus did reveal the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And much of Christianity still struggles with that because they have a different construct of who the Father is and how his character works in the Son and how the Son is. The Son's the loving, merciful Savior who pleads to the judicial magistrate to protect us from the wrath in much of versions of Christianity. But that's not what Jesus said. Really meditating and contemplating and saying, do I see the Father when I see Jesus? is, is transformational for many people. Transformed me to, to realize that. But that's one reason, and they said that, one reason. That's right. It's not the only reason. It's an important, vital, critical, crucial, integral reason, but not the only reason. Other reasons? He came to save us. Yes, and, and so that saving, one of the reasons that he revealed the Father was it was necessary to reveal the Father to win us back to trust because we believe lies about the Father, so we had to have the truth revealed to win us back to trust. That's right. He also simultaneously exposed Satan as a liar and a fraud. That was another reason. He also, though, destroyed death. Yeah. 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. It wasn't just to reveal the Father. Part of why he came was to destroy death and bring life and immortality to light and to destroy the devil's work and destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. When the devil's work was to efface the image of God in man, you realize you were created to be an image bearer of the infinite God. To be a dwelling place where God dwells by his spirit. And Satan hates that, and he wants you to bear his image instead. And so he has worked to efface out of humanity the image of God 
compassionate, loving, truthful, honest, other-centered, patient, kind, merciful, forgiving. They would face that and put in a arbitrary God who makes up rules, an image of, of a person who is going to be stern and just and hold to the rules and make sure that punishments are meted out properly. And he also wanted to secure the unfallen beings. Colossians 1. All things in heaven and earth are reconciled. Yes. What would have happened if, if Christ would have come to the earth and lived his perfect life and demonstrated God's character, but, but not have been put to death? So, <clears throat> several things. One, the question, could he have demonstrated God's character without having been self-sacrificial? Could he have demonstrated God's character by acting to stop death from taking him? and protecting himself and not dying. Would that have demonstrated God's character or the opposite? Now, he didn't commit suicide. He didn't jump off a cliff. He didn't uh, take poison. So his death didn't come out because he was acting to terminate himself. His death came out because of the contrast between his righteousness, his holiness, his love, and the hatred and evil in the heart of his enemy who wanted to kill him. So once he became incarnate, was there an outcome for him that wasn't going to result in his death? I would suggest it wasn't possible for that to happen in the reality of how reality works in a world in which it's governed by self-centered people who hate righteousness. They were going to kill him. So he either acts to stop it, which if he does, is selfish. Or he doesn't act, and he loves even his enemies. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They think they're killing me. They're separating themselves from the only source of life. They've just sentenced themselves to eternal death because they won't come to me that they might have life. That he had to be selfish or not? Yes, I think, I think Satan really didn't believe that God at this point in time wouldn't do it. I think he really thought that he could force Christ's hand to act in self-centeredness. In fact, there's a quote from Ella White where she says, selfishness, let's see, selfless love, the principle of God's kingdom, is a principle that Satan denies. Something along those lines. I have to get the exact quote at a different time. And Judas kind of followed up with that. He tried to force Jesus into a situation to reveal himself and save the Israelites and so on. So he... He thought he had checkmated Jesus into a situation. Uh, he didn't think that it go, would go the way it did either. Exactly. Now, last paragraph. Imagine Jesus himself, God in the flesh, speaking to this young man who obviously knew Jesus was somebody special. And yet, what happened? He allowed his great wealth, his love for material things, to separate him from the very person of God himself. The love of the world and of material things blinded him so that he, <clears throat> so, so though he was sad and sadness wasn't enough to, to make him do the right thing. He wasn't sad because he was losing his possessions. He was sad because he was losing his soul over those things. I want to suggest to you that, in fact, that this wasn't simply a case of valuing material things for their material value. That's not what was going on here. They want to suggest this is greed. He was greedy. He just wanted material things. Not at all. Look at the life of this person. This person was seeking righteousness, wanted to be holy, wanted a reconciliation with God. His problem wasn't material things in and of themselves or their value as material things. His problem was the theology he was raised on. And the theology he was raised on was that the evidence of his righteousness and standing with God was the material things. So it wasn't riches that he pursued. He pursued righteousness, but the evidence of righteousness with God was material things. It was a bad theology that kept him from giving them up. But where did that bad theology come from? <clears throat> Deuteronomy 6:24 The Lord commanded the Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive. Deuteronomy 7:12 to 14 If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your forefathers. He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, your grain, new wine and oil, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks and the land that he swore to your forefathers to give you. You will be blessed more than any other people. 
That's design law. Yes, it is design law. If you live in harmony, if you plant and rotate your crops, if you let them rest every seven years, and you understand how agriculture works and why that's going to happen, you'll get better crops. If you, if you never rest, if you never give the land a rest, and then you drain the resources out and the crops start withering. This is design law, but how did they interpret it? It's just like the parable of the talents, which is not prescriptive, but descriptive. That's right. But when you have an, uh, an imposed law construct... Then you read this, if I, it's, it's level two. This is level two thinking. If I do this, then, then God, the vending machine in heaven, will do that. If I put my coin in, and my coin is to keep the Sabbath. Now, if I keep the Sabbath, I've put my coin in. Now, God, is, if I pay my tithe, if, if, if I claim the Bible promise, if I do the, the ritual, if I go to Passover, if I keep the, the, I'm putting my coin in, then the vending machine puts out the blessing. This is their thinking. Level two. But you are correct. It's all design law. He's describing, if you do this and live in this way, you will be blessed because this is how I've created life to work and all the blessings will flow. You won't cut yourself off. You will be grafted in to life. Tuesday's lesson. First paragraph. It says, debt is not the principle of heaven. But Adam and Eve sinned and broke the law. But Adam and Eve sinned. And a broken law meant death. Thus humanity became debtors to, the, to divine justice. We were bankrupt, spiritually insolvent, from a debt that we could never repay. If debt is not a principle of God's kingdom, and this is true, then why did he create a system in which we could go into debt? I mean, think if it's not a principle of the kingdom, then in his kingdom you can't get there. It is contradictory for any reasoning person. And so ideas like this dethrone human reason. Ideas like this are antithetical. Ideas like this cause people to believe stuff that are nonsense. And then they go towards, well, but, but I, just, I guess I can never comprehend God. I'll just have to believe. And, and we believe all kinds of things. Are we debtors to divine justice? Hmm. Second paragraph. God's love for us is set in, in motion Excuse me, God's love for us set in motion the plan of redemption. Jesus became a surety for us. It is Christ's identity as the Redeemer that reveals the most important transaction. Think, think, think through what that means, transaction ever made. Only the sacrifice of his life could accomplish the required payment of divine justice. Jesus paid the debt of sin that we owed as justice and mercy embraced itself of the cross. Every sin must be punished. We're going to actually have that. Yes, you're quoting. According to this, God set up a transaction. God set up the most important transaction in universal history. Someone is going to pay the debt, according to this. And the payment necessary to pay the debt is? The life of a human sacrifice. Human sacrifices now will be paid. And where is the payment going? To divine justice. Who's the arbiter of divine justice? So God is being paid with the sacrifice of a human being in order for him to not punish. This is paganism. Pure and simple. Paganism. It's not biblical. Yes. A light bulb just come into my head. So Christ didn't come to die for us. He came to show us how to live. Yes, he did. And in coming to show us how to live... He died out of selflessness. But he did die for us, and the death was necessary. We couldn't be saved without it, but it's not for payment of divine justice purposes. This is a false reason. In this setting, in this mindset, in this perspective, if the payment is not made to divine justice, what would the authors argue or state would have to then happen? If Jesus' life is not paid for divine justice, then what's the consequence for that? What does the arbiter of divine justice, what does God do then? God executes the wicked. As if we could live eternally in sin because sin doesn't harm, only God harms for sin. And while you're describing this, I'm thinking that an analogy to today's world, essentially these theologians are using the wrong accountants. I mean, they have a bad law. You're exactly right. So in this setting... In this payment idea, what is being achieved by the payment? 
appeasement. And in this theology, then, what is the problem that the payment is fixing? God's man. <laughs> this is all based on the, the false law construct, that its law works like human laws. Nothing wrong with man. Then. Come back to design law and ask a couple of questions. When Adam and Eve sinned in, in Eden, did God get changed? Did God's law get changed? No. Did the condition of humanity actually change? Yes. Then what needs to change to fix the problem? God, God's law, or the condition of humankind? <laughs> They've got the, the, the focus in the wrong place such that people are actually applying a so-called remedy to a situation that doesn't need remedy. God doesn't need remedy. God's law doesn't need remedy. The heart and mind of human beings need remedy, but we're not applying it there. We're applying the death of Christ to the justice system of God. And thus people claim a legal justification without any actual healing, a form of godliness, but no power. And it's Satan's grand plan to get people to accept a solution for their problem that doesn't actually fix their problem. That's his grand plan. That's what the penal legal theologies do. Fourth paragraph, the Greek word tetelestia in John 19.30 has been called the most important word ever spoken. It means it is finished. And in the last utterance Jesus made, in the last utterance Jesus made on the cross, the final declaration meant that his mission was accomplished and our debt was paid in full. So the lesson authors are going to suggest to you that when Jesus said, it is finished, what he means is your debt has now been paid. First off, before we even get into some historic writings, what is the, if you want to call it that, the punishment for sin that God told Adam and Eve in Eden would happen? Death. Was this the death of a sleep death that Daniel dies and we rise to life from? Is that what he was talking about? Or is he talking about a death from which there is no resurrection, an eternal death in which individuality is destroyed? Which death is the wages of sin death? Did Jesus die that death? If Jesus did not die that death, and that's the punishment and, 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 the, and the cost of sin, if you will, then the payment has not been made. The entire penal substitutionary theology about him making the payment is a fraud and on its face value for any thinking person is a lie. It's a sham. It's a con. And they will try to loop around it and make all types of explanations. But the bottom line is, what is the consequence of wages? Eternal non-existence, eternal death. Did Jesus die eternally or did he rise again? Did he die and lose his individuality? Or did the Bible say this same Jesus that you knew, he's gone up to heaven for us. This is not the death. In fact, it contradicts the Bible. It contradicts one of the greatest promises. One of the greatest promises for you, first and second Timothy, that at his death he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. He wasn't destroyed by death. He was the destroyer of death. Therefore, he didn't die that death. The payment is not legal. It's curative. Now, I read in a book called The Desire of Ages, which I've understood that Billy Graham has said was the best book on the life of Christ he ever read. There's a chapter in that book called It Is Finished. And I, I want to contrast what this author describes that it is finished means with what our lesson suggests it is finished means. Because the lesson suggests it means your, pay, your, your payment is made in full. So we're going to read some sections and then comment on it. This is starting on page 758. To the angels in the unfallen world, the cry, it is finished, had deep significance. It was for them, as well as for us, the great work of redemption had been accomplished. They with us share the fruits of Christ's victory. Pause. Did the angels in heaven have a debt that Christ needed to pay for them? No, they did not. Do we agree that the cross of Christ and his death was for angels, or do you disagree with this? You, if you want a couple of Bible verses, Colossians 1.20, that all things in heaven and in earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. 1 Peter 1.12, angels long to look into these things, talking about the salvation and Christ's mission. Continuing on with the quote. Not until the death of Christ was the character of Satan clearly revealed to the angels or to the unfallen worlds. The archapostate had so clothed himself with deception that even holy beings had not understood his principles. 
They had not clearly seen the nature of his rebellion. What was the nature of his rebellion? That they did not see. Why didn't they understand? The nature of God's kingdom is the natures of love, truth, liberty, how life actually functions. Disobedience cannot be cured by infliction of punishment. They didn't realize that such actions of punishing disobedience are not just. Intelligent beings didn't know that in heaven. So Satan has to manifest his principles. Next, next paragraph. God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one casts a pebble to the earth, but he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling powers found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests upon, what's his authority rest upon? Goodness, mercy, and love. And the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. Used for what? What can you use these principles, mercy, goodness, and love, what can you use those principles to achieve? Expulsion of lies. Expulsion of lies? I was going to say for winning the war, and I wanted to then say, what kind of war? What kind of war can you win with goodness, mercy, and love? The war for people's hearts, minds, loyalty. Yes. If we teach God as the source of inflicted pain, however, and suffering, a God who requires a human sacrifice to appease him so he won't kill us, does that result in the promotion? Does that occur by the promotion of goodness, mercy, and love? Or, in fact, does that teach compelling power? Setting you up to see these things. God's government is moral, and truth and love are to be the prevailing power. How do truth and love prevail? How do truth and love prevail? It was God's purpose to place things on an eternal basis of security. And in the councils of heaven, it was decided the time must be given for Satan to develop the principles which were the foundation of his system of government. He had claimed that these were superior to God's principles. Time was given for the working of Satan's principles that they might be seen by the heavenly universe. How can, you, how can God place things on an eternal basis of security? Do we have security in the hereafter because there's an angel with a flaming sword on every corner to keep us in line? Is that why? Demonstration and memory. We don't have metal detectors in heaven. We have divine heart detectors that you have to walk through on every street corner. If there's one element of rebellion that arises in any heart, it will see it and, and snuff you out of existence so there's eternal security in heaven. Is that how we're going to be secure in heaven? How do we have eternal, eternal security? How? What's required? Sin we've done away with. Sin is done away with, but where does sin happen? Where does sin happen? In the hearts of people. So how do you get sin done away with? By changing people's hearts. are convinced of the love of God. Ah, so all the people in the hereafter will have understood the issues and been so settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, in heart and mind, that no lie, no deceit, no misrepresentation can ever take root in their hearts again. They've been inoculated against it. This is how. And the only way to do that is present the truth in love and leave people free and demonstrate and provide the evidence for intelligent beings to decide on their own. Does this mean, though, for an eternal basis of security, that when we get to heaven, we will actually have to remember what happened on earth? We have to remember our own sins and what we've been delivered and forgiven for and, and so forth. Or will those things be erased? from? If they're erased, then will we have security? No, we'll remember yes. yes. As soon as you erase the history, there is no security. It can all happen again. The memory that was of no significance. Yeah. Just like you don't... The memories of significance in the context of what it means for us. It's very significant. Right. But you don't bring that up because it does not relate to your current... It's never tempting. It's never an issue for you. So the memory is not in, of significance in the context of our relationship with God. It's of significance in what we have learned so that we are so settled into the truth and we remember what's been done for us. Are we going to remember our sins in heaven? So Jesus said to the woman who, uh, said to those who were criticizing the woman who washed his feet with expensive oil. They were criticizing. Remember? And Jesus said, those who are forgiven much, love much. 
if you remember what you've be, that you've been forgiven, will it be necessary to remember what you've been forgiven for? Yes. And if you don't remember, let me just give you a simple example. You have a child dying of a terrible disease. And, 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 you, and you have done everything. You feel helpless. Powers are wasting away. Doctors say you can't do anything. You're helpless. But another doctor comes in, gives them one pill free, and it's like Jesus touching the paralytic. Boom! That one pill heals your child. They're back to restored to health. Would you value and appreciate that doctor who freely healed your child? And how about the next day when you get up, all memory of the sickness... And all memory of the healing are gone. You just have a healthy child, but you don't remember what happened. Do you still value the doctor as much? Hmm, you don't like that, do you? <laughs> yes. And in the past, bad things have happened to probably all of us. I wrote things down, you know, diary. Later, I thought later on I might write a book. But I came across them later, started reading them. They brought back all those sick feelings again. And I thought, I don't even want to write a book about this. Uh, it's part of my past, so I you know, like burnt them all. Because I thought, even though I can remember it, I don't really dwell on it, and I don't want to remember it now. Okay, so that's the difference between not wanting to bring it up and having memory erasure or amnesia. You do not have amnesia, but there's no purpose in bringing it up. That's okay. Yeah. All heaven and the unfallen worlds have been witnesses to the controversy. With what intense interest did they follow the closing scenes of the conflict? They beheld the Savior enter the Garden of Gethsemane. His soul bowed down with the horror of great darkness. They heard his bitter cry, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. As the Father's presence was withdrawn, they saw him sorrowful with a bitterness of sorrow, exceeding that of the last great struggle with death. Was the Father inflicting punishment here? Was the father using power to cause torment, to inflict consequence, to, to, to torment or torture? Was, was father doing something actively to cause this? Was the father withdrawing his presence? Why? Was the father withdrawing because the father was angry at Jesus, because Jesus was now taking sin upon himself, and as Jesus was becoming sin, though he knew no sin, that sin on Jesus now drew out all the anger and wrath of the father, and the father was so mad he had to just walk away or else he would hurt him. <laughs> was it that Father was so offended that sin is so offensive to God he can't stand to look at it it was just causing him nausea and disgust and so he had to leave to, to, to kind of calm himself he couldn't stand to see his son son you see I, I'm, I'm being a little bit tongue in cheek here but these are ideas that are often taught about God in relation to sin let me ask you this what was Jesus' mission in addition to ruling the Father? When he said to his disciples, he said to Peter in just a little bit, he had a mission. He was going to Jerusalem to do what? What did he tell him he was going to do there? He was going to die there. He was going to die. Because it was only through that that he could achieve his goal. Destroy the infection of sin. Restore the image of God and man and so forth. So he has a mission. Let me ask you. His mission is to die. Could he die? and complete his mission as a human being, he's doing this in, in humanity, if the source of life did not let go of him. Do you remember why he said to his apostles when Lazarus was, uh, when Lazarus was sick, it's, it's expedient that I have stayed here for three days and tarried? Why was it important that he tarried for three days before he went? If he would have shown up before Lazarus died, what would have happened? Lazarus would have lived. He's the source of life. Jesus cannot have completed his mission if the Father had not withdrawn his presence. This was not a punishment. This was not some type of wrathful, angry God, mad and hostile. This was the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit cooperatively taking their parts to fulfill the purpose of the plan of salvation. And at this moment, it was necessary for their connection to be separated for him to achieve the victory. You need to sink that into your minds because you will hear over and over again that at the cross, this was some act of punishment from God to punish sin. That the sins were put upon Christ and God punished them in Christ. It's a lie. Keep going with the quote. The bloody sweat was forced from his pores and fell in drops upon the ground. Thrice the prayer for deliverance was wrung from his lips. Heaven could no longer endure the sight. A messenger of comfort was sent to the sun. Satan, satanic agencies confederated with evil men in leading the people to believe Christ the chief of sinners and to make him the object of detestation. 
Those who mocked Christ as he hung upon the cross were imbued with the spirit of the first great rebel. He filled them with vile and loathsome speeches. He inspired them with taunts. But by all this he gained nothing. Could one sin have been found in Christ had he in one particular yielded to Satan to escape the terrible torture, the enemy of God and man would have triumphed. Why? What was Christ fighting to achieve here? Triumph over evil. What was the root of his struggle? Was his root of his struggle primarily physical? The physical beating. Now, I'm not saying it was pleasant. I'm not saying that, that, that... But what did the physical beatings... And if you have ever been beaten, when you're physically beating, what does it instill? Well, it ca- yes, anger. It causes very powerful emotions, doesn't it? If you, were, if you were put under anesthesia and then somebody beats you, it doesn't really have an effect on you, does it? It's the beating causing an emotional reaction of an intense desire to escape... His big battle in Gethsemane. Father's father, let this cup pass from me. He was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. And we're tempted by our own feelings. And he had these feelings to act to save self, save self, save self. This is the carnal nature. This is the, the infection upon which we all stumble. And he never stumbled there. He felt the temptation, but he overcame the temptation with self-sacrificial love. and restored perfectly in, the, in his humanity God's methods of doing things. Christ bowed his head and died, but he held fast his faith and his submission to God. And I heard a loud voice saying in the heavens, Now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, and the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. His administration was laid open before the unfallen angels and before heavenly universe. He had revealed himself as a murderer. By shedding the blood of the Son of God, he had uprooted himself from the sympathies of the heavenly beings. Who killed Jesus at the cross? I didn't hear you. Satan and evil men together confederated to do that. Reject all these theologies that have justice required God, put sin on Jesus, and then execute sin at the cross. This is taught in every Christian denomination, including the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It's a lie. There are many people in our church who don't believe it, but there are many who teach it. You will find it in various places. I've got the quotes in our um, lecture series. You get the red DVD out here. You can look at the second lecture, um, Designer or Dictator. I go through those quotes and show you those evidences of how this idea comes in. It's a lie. Henceforth, his work was restricted, Satan's work. Whatever attitude he might assume, he could no longer wait the angels as they came from heavenly courts and before them accused the Christ's brethren as being clothed with garments of blackness and the defilement of sin. The last link of sympathy between Satan and the heavenly world was broken. So what broke that last link of sympathy? What restricted Satan's movement? Was Satan's movement restricted? You see, prior to the cross of Christ, you see Satan sometimes appearing in heaven. In the book of Job, he's up there still telling his lies and people are listening. He's getting a hearing. After the death of Christ... Satan's movements are restricted to planet Earth. Are they restricted because God put a force shield around the planet and he tries, can't get off the planet? Or is he restricted because all intelligences in the rest of the universe have been settled into the truth and they will not listen to him anymore? No one gives him an ear to hear except on planet Earth. On planet Earth is the only place in the universe where their intelligent beings still believe his lies and promote his lies. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared the law of God could not be obeyed and that justice was inconsistent with mercy. And that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for sinners to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. Who originated this idea that for justice sake, God must punish sin? It's right from hell. And our churches are deeply infected with this. It is promoted on the radio and the airways and books and, and leading men of all denominations promote this, that justice requires that sin must be punished. And God is the arbiter and inflicts the punishment. And thus all the theologies are designed to protect you and hide you from God rather than heal you from what's wrong in your heart. And I'm going to suggest to you the Christian church cannot complete its work to prepare the world to meet Jesus as long as we promote these lies about him. 
When men broke the law of God and defied his will, Satan exalted. It was proved, he declared, that the law could not be obeyed. Man could not be forgiven. Because he, after his rebellion, had been banished from heaven, Satan claimed that the human race must forever be shut out of God's favor. God could not be just, he urged, and show mercy to the sinner. But even as a sinner, man was in a different position from that of Satan. Lucifer in heaven had sinned in the light of God's glory. To him, as to no other created being, was given a revelation of God's love. Understanding the character of God, knowing his goodness, Satan chose to follow his own selfish, independent will. This choice was final. There was no more God could do to save him. But man was deceived. His mind was darkened by Satan's sophistry. The height and the depth of the love of God he did not know. For him, there was hope in a legal payment to appease the justice of God. For him, there was hope in a knowledge of God's love. But beholding his character, he might be drawn back to God. What could impact humanity and result in drawing us back to God for salvation? The truth of God's character of love. Does this give you insight as to why Christ didn't die for fallen angels? He didn't die for fallen angels because it would have had no impact on them. They already understood God's self-sacrificial character. They've already assessed it, contemplated it, and rejected it. But man didn't fully appreciate it. Keep going. Through Jesus, God's mercy was manifested to men. But mercy did not set aside justice. Here we go. And I will tell you, those in the penal camp will latch, ignore everything we've read so far. Latch onto this one sentence, pull it out, and say, see, there's still justice. And then they immediately define justice through human law construct that you must punish sin. After we've just gone against compelling power and all this other stuff. But let's keep reading what the author here says. The law reveals the attributes of God's character. Not a jot or tittle could be changed to meet man in his fallen condition. What does that mean? What is God's character? And thus the law is an attribute of love. And how does love work? Principle of giving. Remember the, all the examples in nature, the breath you give away and you get back the carbon dioxide and oxygen from the plants and so forth. It's a circle of love built into nature. Can love be coerced? No. No change can be made to the law to meet man in his condition because the law are the protocols upon which life are built. It'd be like saying, no change to the law of respiration can be made to meet a drowning man who refuses to bring his head above water. You can't, you can't change the law to meet him there. You've got to bring him above water to be in harmony with the law. That's what it means. God did not change his law, but he sacrificed himself in Christ for man's redemption. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Which means what? What was the purpose? If the law cannot be changed, and God does not change, then what needed to change? The condition of humankind. Would this require that the human being somehow be changed? And would this require a human being to do it? That's why Christ became human, because we couldn't do it. So he did it. Notice what the next paragraph says. The law requires, under the legal model, we just read it, the law requires what? A payment, a transaction, a legal accounting. This author says, the law requires righteousness, a righteous life. A perfect character. And this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ, coming to earth as man, lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. Why was this necessary? For the same reason the law of respiration requires you breathe. That's the only way life exists in God's kingdom. Keep going. He developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive him. Notice, a free gift. It's yours. Offered to you. His life stands for the life of man. Thus, in other words, he's the second Adam. He stands as the head of humanity in the councils of heaven. He sits on a throne as a human being, the son of man. Now, forever and eternity, God's soul of the Lord, he gave his only begotten son. Not for 33 years, but for eternity, Christ will retain humanity. Thus, they have remission of sins that are passed through, the lesson would say, the payment's been made. This says, through the forbearance of God. No legal payment. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds them up the human character and the similitude of the divine, a goodly fabric full of strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ, and he can be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. What does justice here say? What is the just and right thing to do? To fix what's broken and freely give it to all who will take it. There's nothing legal about it. Another deception was now 
was now to be brought forward. Satan declared that mercy destroyed justice and that the death of Christ abrogated the Father's law. Had it been possible for the law to be changed or abrogated, then Christ need not have died. But, the abrog- but to abrogate the law would be to immortalize transgression. It was because the law was changeless, because man could be saved only through obedience to its precepts, that Jesus was lifted up on the cross. Yet the very means by which Christ established the law, Satan represents as destroying it. Here will come the last conflict of the great controversy between Christ and Satan. The last conflict? How does Satan take the cross, which was Christ's mean of establishing God's design, his perfect law, his protocols for life, restoring it into humanity, developing a perfect character. He establishes it cannot be changed and life exists. How does Satan then take the cross and destroy the law? By substituting design law for imposed law. We don't actually believe God's laws like this. We believe God's law functions like human law. And thus the cross was the legal payment. It was a way to appease. It was a way to do the transaction. It was a way to make the payment to the divine authority so that justice can be satisfied. And thus the cross becomes the means of misrepresenting God. And this is where we are. It's the final thing in the controversy. Keep going. Next words in the, in the quotation. By substituting human law for God's law, Satan will seek to control the world. Men will surely set up their laws to counterwork the laws of God. They will seek to compel the consciences of others in their zeal to enforce these laws. The warfare against God's law, which was begun in heaven, will be continued until the end of time. Every character, all will be called to choose between the law of God and the laws of men. Which law? Design law, impose law. Here's the dividing line will be drawn. There will be but two classes. Every character will be fully developed and all will show whether they have chosen the side of loyalty or rebellion. By how? Are you embracing the designer and beginning to live in harmony with his designs and protocols, truth that presented a love and leaving people free? Or are you embracing a dictator God who makes up rules and must injustice inflict punishments? And thus when he comes, he says, you know, I love you. I've died for you. I've given my life for you. If you won't accept my payment for divine justice, then justice will require that first I must imprison you. And then then you can't buy or sell. And, And then I will ultimately have to kill you for justice sake. And this is our God. We waited for him. This is what the world is being set up for. Then the end will come. God will vindicate his law and deliver his people. Satan and all who have joined him in rebellion will be cut off. Sin and sinners will perish, root and branch. How do they perish? By being cut off, let go. And when the source of life lets you go, what happens? So the next, next verse. This is not an act of arbitrary power on the part of God. The rejectors of his mercy reap that which they have sown. God is the fountain of life. And when one chooses the service of sin, he separates from God and thus cuts himself off from life. By a life of rebellion, Satan and all those who place themselves so out of harmony with God that his presence to them becomes a consuming fire. The glory of him who is love will destroy them. At the beginning of the great controversy, the angels did not understand this. Had Satan and his host been left to reap the full result of their sin, they would have perished, but it would not have been apparent to the heavenly beings that this was the inevitable result of sin. Notice, a result of sin, not a punishment from God. How much of Christianity teaches that the death is a result of sin versus how much of Christianity teaches it's the just punishment of God. It's the same lie. A doubt of God's goodness would have remained in their minds and as an evil seed to produce its deadly fruit of sin and woe. That's what the modern version of Christianity wants, to continue to keep this evil seed of God alive. We cannot have an eternal basis of security till we reject it. I have to, a couple, couple more things. I know we're running a little over, but we have to bring this to conclusion. But not so when the great controversy shall be ended. Then the plan of redemption having been completed, the character of God is revealed to all created intelligences. The precepts of his law are seen to be perfect and immutable. Well then might the angels rejoice as they looked upon the Savior's cross. Christ himself fully comprehended the results of his sacrifice upon Calvary. To all these he looked forward when upon the cross he cried out, It is finished. Do we find that there's more to it is finished than he paid our debt in full? In fact, if you want to argue that it is finished means he paid our debt in full, you have just obscured all that he actually did, and you cheat people from it. If you want my commentary for that quotation, it is in the notes. The notes will be up in 24 to 48 hours. And there's another beautiful quotation we won't go into. I'm going to read you two sentences, and we're going to close. 
This is out of Signs of the Times, December 30, 1889, but check these words out. There are many who will be lost because they depend on legal religion or mere repentance for sin. But repentance for sin alone cannot work the salvation of any soul. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you do not run your universe like we human beings run the systems of this world. That your laws are not imposed rules and you are not the source of inflicted pain and suffering. That your laws are the design protocols for all of our health, our life, our happiness, our joy, our best good. Lord, we ask that your spirit of truth will come enlighten our minds, but more than enlighten our minds, transform our hearts to live in harmony with you and your kingdom, and then empower us to be beacons of light in this dark world that is so corrupt with this imperialistic view of you that we can spread this light and that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.